Hi, and welcome back to This Week in Voice, Season 6, Episode 3. We're off and running with Season 6. We're grateful for uh, some of the emails and correspondence we've received uh, that people are excited about the show starting again. Uh, we never stopped it uh, because we wanted to. We stopped it because uh, the world stopped it and people were not commuting, so podcast data was way down. But uh, we're excited to have it back. And uh, speaking of something else we're excited to have back, is we're going to be gathering in person at the end of this month in Florida at Project Voice X. The link for that, for the program and the registration, will be in the notes of the YouTube video if you're listening to this online uh, or through your, your podcast provider of choice. Check it out on YouTube. We'll have the link there. And um, we'd love to see you. If you can't join us, we got Project Voice X worldwide uh, virtually as well. But uh, it's 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 nice to be uh, looking forward to meeting some people in person once again, and if you can join us, we would love to see you. My name is Bradley Metrock. I'm CEO of Project Voice, and uh, excited to be hosting the show for the sixth season. We've got a great guest panel today, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves one by one. Carrie, I'm going to start with you. Tell us who you are. Tell us who you're with. Tell us what you do. Be happy to. My name is Kerry Bricks. I'm currently working with VUI, a group in Boston that concentrates on natural language solutions, and we really focus on e-commerce. And so most of my activities the last couple of years have been primarily focused on e-commerce, but that expands from retailers. I like to include other groups in that, um, QSRs with fast food. Uh, that's an interesting area. Also with CPGs, because I think more and more brands are understanding the value of voice engagement and they're finding use cases that are sensible and, and uh, practical. So I've been working in voice solutions about five years and I started out working with an IBM team and, and that was actually marketing focused and the group put together the first practical marketing platform using Watson which it was actually fairly impractical, frankly, because of the difficulties of, of building Watson solutions at the time. But uh, it, it did launch me into a space that I've really enjoyed ever since and uh, enjoy the fact I've known Bradley now for over three years and have participated in a number of his events. And uh, just like really being part of this community because I think it's very exciting. There's a lot of innovation. You know, A lot of people are understanding the, the power of communication and you know, all of us would agree that, that speaking is the natural way to communicate. So in terms of human machine interfaces, we're all going to be you know, very involved with this. And it'll be really the way people engage, I think, with a lot of different things, including e-commerce uh, over the next you know, 20 years or whatever, until some new revolutions happen. So it's been very evolutionary. I think solutions now are much better than they were even just a few years ago. So there's a lot of dynamics, and that's what I really like. It's it's a very vital industry. Kerry, it's great to have you join us. Thank you. Our next guest is Todd Moser of Sensory. Todd, say hello. Tell us who you are and tell us what you do. Hello. Um, nice to see everybody today, and hope you guys can all hear me fine. Um, so I'm Todd Moser. I started Sensory 27 years ago. At that point in time, I would have called myself a serial entrepreneur, but given that I've been running it now for 27 years, I think that the serial is now 
gone and probably entrepreneurs as well. I started Sensory to enable products to communicate with people the way we communicate with each other using sensory functions. And um, our, our strategy back then was to use neural nets, which everybody thought was really, really bizarre. And today you might call what we were doing shallow learning because we weren't using the, the massive amounts of memory and many, many layers in today's deep learning. But the basic architectures of our initial technologies were using um, deep learning approaches. And what we've done over the years, we've shipped in um, over 3 billion different consumer products. So really massive volumes with pretty much every major player in the consumer electronics space. Um, for the first 20 or so years of our business, we were a real oddball company because everybody else was focused on computers or, or server cloud-based solutions. And we were doing everything in, on, on device, which we called embedded back then. Today, everybody calls it the edge. Um, but we've been doing edge computing solutions with AI for a really, really long time, um, spanning everything from automotive to wearables. We've been in lots of mobile phones. We've worked with most of the today's trillion dollar companies. And a lot of companies turn for us for edge-based solutions because we're very accurate, we're very small, um, we very low power consumption. Um, so in terms of our technology suite, we have a variety of different voice offerings ranging from wake words, which we're pretty famous for, um, but we also do natural language. We also do very large vocabulary solutions. Um, we can do biometrics for both face and voice. We have computer vision technologies and we have sound identification technologies, pretty much, um, Anything we can collect data for, we can uh, create algorithms that work really, really well and usually really, really tiny. Um, so we've got a lot going on in a lot of different areas. Todd, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. It's nice to be here. And our third guest is Alistair from Metametrics. Alistair, tell us who you are, uh, who you're with, what and uh, what you do with Metametrics. Hey, Brad. Uh, great to be here. Thanks. Yep, well, I'm, uh, I'm at Metametrics. We're uh, a company based in uh, Durham, North Carolina, and uh, we're an educational technology company. Uh, I've been in EdTech for, for 20 years now before coming to Metametrics. So I worked at Pearson Education and headed up the um, AI scoring department there where we would score millions of student essays uh, that they took in their exams every year and we would do that automatically. Um, and we also developed assessments for uh, uh, telling uh, how well you could speak a foreign language. Uh, we had a, a half a dozen uh, language assessments to tell you what was your fluency and grammar and pronunciation in a different language, which was fully automated, uh, computer delivered, completely scored by um, uh, ASR tech. Uh, that was, uh, and, and, and we were doing that as long as 20 years ago. Uh, but right now in, in Metametrics, uh, we're, um, so we're an edtech company. What we do is we use AI technology to measure learning materials, books, audio materials, uh, and so on. And then we use uh, educational measurement methodology to evaluate students' ability in things like reading and math. And then we use learning theory to develop an optimal match between the two so that we can match kids with uh, the right level of learning material for them to keep them engaged, keep them interested, make learning efficient, 
um, and, and match them to materials that are interesting for them. The, the brand is called Lexile Measures. 35 million kids get a Lexile measure every year if you have a student in school. Look at their score report or look at their last test score. Um, and, and probably there's a Lexile measure somewhere on that score report. So that's what we do. Alistair, thank you for joining us. Yeah, really cool group. So with that, we'll get to the news. And uh, for the first time in probably a couple of seasons, we have a, a guest story request. So before we started the show, um, we were having a conversation, kicking things off. And um, Todd from Sensory brought to our attention that uh, there's a story um, posted to VoiceBot this morning coming out of Spotify. And I'm going to read the headline. Spotify opens U.S. sales of $80 car thing. Now, this is uh, some news that's kind of been tracking along. You know, th there's been talk of this. I don't think that the announcement, uh, I don't know if anybody knew it was coming. But before we get into the four proper stories for the show, Todd, I'm going to yield the, yield the floor to you. What, what does this story mean to you? And uh, paint us a picture. Sure. I'm glad I can uh, bring in an improper story. So I'm, I, I love consumer electronics. That's what that's sensory has been doing from the start. And I think it's really exciting that Spotify is introducing their own product to bring Spotify into cars. And I think it's interesting for a couple of key reasons. One, they're not using Google. They're not using Amazon. They're not using any of the big major players. There's a really interesting dynamic going on in the whole voice space where we've got these trillion dollar companies with really good solutions, but also that offer competitive threats to pretty much everybody in the ecosystem. And Spotify's one that probably sees that threat. Everybody wants to be in the music space and they've come out with their own assistant to do it. And they've made it easy to enable in cars. And if you think about it, Apple has Apple Music, Google has um, Spotify, uh, I'm sorry, Google has their YouTube music that they're now selling. Um, and they're all bringing it into cars. And as a, as a consumer, I've noticed something really interesting. And that's that when I'm in my, I, I'm an Android user, when I'm in my car, I find it's very hard to connect. It, it's not easy to get my, my phone to play music in my car. And I always assumed that, that that was an Android issue because Android has so many different spins for so many different phones and they're not all the same. And I thought that problem didn't exist actually on the iPhone platform. But then the other day we were driving, I was driving with my family and they're all iPhone users. And we were trying to figure out how to switch from one person's phone to another. And it was really complex. So I think um, Spotify's done something very interesting to simplify this whole process. Yeah, and you know, Spotify from, I've been a Spotify user for a long time. And uh, what that means is I've had my, my wife and son uh, interrupting my Spotify playlist for a long time is actually another way to phrase that. Um, you know, I I always mention Spotify um, in the context of voice-enabled apps because their mobile app that has voice integrated, um, it just works. It works like everything auto work is how it works. And what that does is it makes it magical. It just anything, what you think it ought to do and what you think it should be able to do, it exceeds both of those expectations and it's a beautiful thing. And so, yeah, you, you pointed out, you know, you, the, the, um, the fact that uh, this is a little bit of a story of, of 
independent voice and AI versus big tech voice and AI um, kind of leads us into story number one, but wanted, wanted to just uh, honor the fact that you brought this story to, to the floor and, you know, this will be something I'm sure will be coming up in, in future weeks, but uh, thank you for sharing with us and, and sharing your thoughts on it. And it, it'll, it'll take us straight into story number one, which is Microsoft, also from VoiceBot, uh, what a shock, Microsoft and NVIDIA unveil enormous language model with 530 billion parameters. And Carrie, I'm going to start with you. We'll rotate as we go along the show uh, for this. Carrie, I'll start with you and then Alistair and then Todd, I'll, I'll go back to you and then we'll cycle through as we go. Um, this is interesting. You know, obviously GPT-3, which is mentioned in the story, is, is kind of... Um, uh, the the thousand pound gorilla that everybody's measuring themselves against. What what did you take away from this? Do you you know do you view this story in more of a big tech um, you know society being cautious way, or do you view it as just a, a positive story of progress? Tell me your thoughts. I think I first say it's it's a positive story. Um, making domains has been a real challenge for a lot of companies. And building the language models, I think, is still, you know, one of the bigger hurdles that as you're building domain-specific or conversational-specific tools, it's been underestimated a lot. And so having a kind of a pre-built or at least phrases and, and understanding NLU in a very large, maybe open base that you can access and utilize parts of, I think is natural. I think it's kind of the progression, just like tools are becoming more open sourced and they're, they're not as proprietary as they certainly have been. There's, there's some more and more building blocks for constructing language models. And I would say that this is, a, you know, a very large way to step into that. And a lot of people could take advantage of that. It, it won't fill all the gaps in because there's going to be nuances for every kind of domain and every kind of conversational, you know, challenges we face. But, but I think, uh, that's something I actually care a lot about and have thought there should be more companies focusing on domain building because I think every domain will have a lot of purpose, especially very general large ones where there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of potential words and phrases. So if this can help speed up that process, that's a big plus. You know, if you can access that and, and put use to it, um, it's, it's such a massive thing. You know, I don't I, I can't say what the impact will be immediately but I, I think it's a trend that we'll see a lot more of uh, subject matter specific domains. And I think there's a real business around that that could be built by companies, I guess. Excellent. Yeah. And speaking of companies that might want to do that, Alistair, what's your take on, uh, on this story and, and uh, positive, negative, uh, what stood out? I love the story. I love the name for this this model as well, the Megatron Megatron Turing Natural Language Generator. So cool. Um, Five hundred and thirty billion parameters. I mean, it's mind blowing. And they say they're getting better performance from GPT three. And so what this means, I think, is that it's not stopping here. You know, six months from now, a year from now, there's going to be another release. And some organization is going to have built an even bigger model with more parameters and more training data. Um, we're going to keep going for as long as we keep getting better results because big organizations have got the, the resources to do it. Um, you know, we're probably going to see a diminishing return on those results. Um, 
uh, over time. And, and uh, you know, that, that's unclear to me how much of a return exactly we've seen on this versus GPT-3. I think, um, so it's cool. Most people, I think, in the world are going about their business blithely unaware of what an incredible game changer this is. It is going to revolutionize a lot of jobs, um, uh, and a lot of jobs will go obsolete because of this. It will change jobs, and it will change people's everyday lives. And we're not even sure how yet. Um, but if you've just sat down and played with GPT-3 and seen what it can do, you just think, wow, that's that's really going to uh, uh, change things. And, and the big promise here is that we're building these models and they're completely unrealized, right? I mean, GPT has been sitting out there and a lot of engineers are using it as a sandbox to do interesting things. But the actual applications of it um, in... Uh, uh, you know, services that companies are offering, uh, like we, we've just not scratched the surface yet. And so I think <laughs> by all means, go ahead, big companies and keep building these big models. But what I'm really interested in is how are we going to make these functional and usable um, and, and, and getting them to work? And I know we're talking about Alexa later, but wouldn't it be great to get that natural language understanding and natural language generator in Alexa so that you could actually start to have a useful conversation with her rather than be... Um, taken to you know a random website related to what you said <laughs> um i think that's the big promise right sure yeah no I, I think there's a couple of interesting things you point out in there and and todd i want to go to you as well you know um either either piggybacking on your thoughts with with spotify which i thought were, were great or, or or taking it a different direction what were your thoughts on this story sure um i mean it seems like an incremental improvement you can um quadruple the amount of data or double the amount of data, but it still is pretty incremental over what we've read about and heard about from GPT-3. Uh, GPT-3 captured a lot of hype and a lot of the really, really cool things uh, that are going on with, um, with, with natural language. There's, um, I guess, a couple little things in the background that are worth mentioning though. One is that more data, we think more data is better. But actually, it doesn't always work that way. You know, in, in a lot of the work that Sensory has done with deep learning and, and in fact, in research that I've read, I've heard about bimodal distributions where you hit a certain point in accuracy and you give it more data and the accuracy drops and you give it more data and the accuracy goes up again. So more data isn't necessarily better. Um, in fact, we've had models that we added data to and our accuracy just dropped. Um, it's got to be the right data for the right domain. I think Carrie hit on sort of the domain specific kind of issues. We've certainly found that very well targeted domain information can outperform huge amounts of data that, that is intended for more broad use. The other interesting thing about this story is there's a, a presumption here that I actually agree with, but the whole industry seems to be debating in the background, which is whether you even want language models and acoustic models and, and natural language processing as separate functions, or if you want to just throw a ton of data at it and come up with one giant model that incorporates the language model and the acoustic models and whatnot. So, you know, Sensory's approach is definitely to separate them. We've uh, experimented with a variety of different approaches, and we see more accuracy from having separated models, but there's other players in the industry that says, you know, you've got to do a true end-to-end -end system and then you get the, the most, uh, the best performance. And that in the long run might actually end up to be true. You know, yeah, uh, great points all the way around. I, I, I'm 
intrigued by it because uh, as Alistair and I have discussed uh, at, at some length, um, something that fascinates me is just the inability currently, I don't think this will last much longer. You know, I think there's a business here. The, in, the absolute vacuum of meaningful metrics around um, a lot of parts up and down the voice and AI value chain. So there's a there's a number in this story, which you know we're not used to seeing that many numbers, you know. But here's a number: five hundred and thirty billion. That's what it is, right? Yeah, five hundred and thirty billion parameters. Okay. So what this reminds me of is uh, how uh, I think it's like Ohio State and Tennessee, you know, and some other football programs like used to compete. I think they still do uh, now that COVID is kind of waning, and hopefully that continues um, to have one more seat in their stadium than everybody else. So they can say they're the biggest stadium uh, in the United States. It's like, what are we gonna see next? You know, 530 billion parameters and one. Um, what is it, you know, the, it, it, I think it's accurate. You know, it's great to point out that that actually could be harmful, but it's interesting to sort of ruminate on if this might be something that people try, you know, some of these big juggernauts try to compete on each other with to sell to sell access to services or things because there's just not that many metrics we have right now. But anyway, I digress. Uh, it's a good, good place for us to start. Um, well, any one, one last comment, just sure. um, as, as you throw more and more data in it, you also increase the risk that you're throwing bad data in, into the equation, which well, is course. really interesting because it's, it's not all hand labeled. So what if somebody writes essays with improper English and poor use of grammar? The, the system's going to learn on that. So if there's enough of the wrong stuff, the system learns the wrong thing. I remember, um, I think it was Microsoft a number of years ago that came out with something trained on a lot of open source data, and it ended up doing kind of saying bad things and being very politically incorrect because that's what the data it was training on was. Oh, yeah. No, we've covered a story right here on the show uh, talking about... Um... I forget what country it is. I always forget what country it is. It's some country in Europe that has a very particular language. And uh, a lot of the language models were being trained on Wikipedia. Well, they all had all the same errors. And it was it was almost unusable. And they're, they're like, what, what is this? What did they find out? And this is not, it's funny and it's not funny. Most of Wikipedia, for whatever country this is, and it's going to bug me, I'll have to look it up after the show. Um, most of the Wikipedia entries for this particular country were writ written by one person. And who was that one person? A 16-year-old girl in North America so who just decided to do this. So she, all of her uh, inadequacies with the language showed up, and they estimated that she was that to fix... Wikipedia with all these articles would cost hundreds of millions of U.S. dollars uh, to fix. So um, anyway, <laughs> I, I wish I could remember the name of the country, but uh, I'll have to put it in the show notes after I look it up afterward. But uh, yeah, um, any other closing thoughts? Alistair, did you have a yeah, yeah. If I can add, I got one thing, Alistair, I'll just jump in quick. And that yep. one thing I would add is uh, the work that, that I've been involved with and what VUI is really focusing on is say for a grocer and a grocer could have 35,000 to a million SKUs if they have endless aisle environments. And so I don't know how the Microsoft models can apply to 
brand names and attributes across a million products. You know what I'm saying? So, so that may or may not be fitting for some of the, the uses that are being applied now that, that people are starting to pay for and implement. Good point. And Alistair, uh, your, your, any additional thoughts you had and we'll move on to the next story. Yeah, just this, this training data and, and, and the limitations of it. I mean, these, this is basically trained on all the words that there are out there. I mean, it's, it's the common crawl and it's the pile. Right. So there's trillions of words there that have all just been scraped off the Internet. And sure, it's got all the biases built in. I think that the promise of these is that you can add a So 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 that's your main uh, model. But, but you can add a training layer on top of it that says, and now I want you to perform this function in an unbiased way. Like, I know you've been trained on bias data and I know that there's, you know, there's there's uh, neutral as well. And, and when you perform this task, I want you to be aware of what's biased and what's not. And so I think that there are like train it on everything you've got and then make it aware um, uh, of this to fulfill the task that you want. So I don't necessarily think it's it's garbage in, garbage out. It's it's like th- th- there are nuances there to how you what you do with that data. Well, yeah, and, and this is this is going to be a polarizing type of type of thing. We could discuss it the whole story, the whole show, if we wanted to. But uh, great, great perspective that the three of y'all bring, and some of the themes are going to continue with this next story. Number two from Screen Rant, which this is actually the first time we've ever used this source. Wendy's to use Google's AI to stop burgers from burning. So <laughs> I saw this and this was an immediate inclusion. Uh, Alistair, I'll, I'll start with you and then Todd and then Carrie. Alistair, what what you get out of this? What, anything stand out? Yeah, that just seems like a, a particularly bad application of sort of the, the vision software that, that interprets what's going on in the world. Um, it, it's, okay, to me, this looked like a, a marketing gimmick where... Um, you know, the, the chief technology technology officer of Wendy's had sat down with Google um, and they brainstormed some ideas and then marketing got hold of it before they'd actually, you know, done anything with it and, and turned it into a, a story that the media picked up. Um, I, oh, gosh. I mean, I hope they've got better ideas than uh, we can figure out <laughs> uh, the burgers about to burn. Um, you know, I, I, I have images of this dystopian world where, um, you're working in a fast food uh, a restaurant and uh, the AI technology is telling you, um, now flip the burger, now attend to the customer, now put the fries in the box. Um, it's like a, a taking the the um, Amazon warehouse uh, model where all your movements are dictated to you and putting it into a, um, uh, a fast food chain. I don't, I don't think that will make em- employees very happy. But, but there was another aspect of this story, which is, can we improve the drive-through experience? And, um, you know, I have to say, I, I, <laughs> there are different kinds of drive-through experiences. There is the awful one where you pull up to some kind of pillar uh, and you don't know where to look and you can't hear the voice on the other side and they get your order wrong 50% of the time. Um, and if you have a question about the menu, just like they, they can't be bothered to answer, <laughs> right? That experience can be improved. There is another drive-through experience where um, you, you've got uh, really cheerful um, attendees out in the in the car park with iPads who are who are uh, greeting you, taking your order, making sure everything's good, and you know it's going to be right. Um, you know, can you move from the first experience and automate it so that it's as pleasant as that second experience? I'm not so sure about this one. 
Yeah, well, and that's that's a good way to to tell us that you've been to a Chick Fil A without telling us you've been to a Chick Fil A. So thank you for that, um, Todd. Uh, interesting story here. What are what's your uh, what are your thoughts? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, I, I I agreed with Alistair completely on the Microsoft Nvidia news, but I kind of have a different take on on this. First of all, I think um, using computer vision to flip burgers is very easy and is very useful. So um, you know, that sensory does a lot of work with computer vision and burger flipping would be one of the better and easier things that can be accurately done. So I do think there's real value in that, but I think the story goes a lot bigger than flipping burgers. You know, that's kind of the funny headline. They're also talking about other things that have to do with privacy, like watching users as they walk up and knowing their history. And so they can start preparing things in time for them. And there's, you know, privacy is a big issue when you come to AI. Do people, um, do people want to be watched? You know, do you, do you want somebody knowing that you're at a Wendy's? Um, do you want your history to play a role in what they're going to do for you? Because maybe you want to change your history. And do you want your, um, your demographics to determine what people, what specials people are going to offer you? There's a lot of um, ethical questions in the background of having microphones and cameras watching you. But there's, there's a third aspect to this story, which kind of relates what I brought up um, with the whole Spotify thing, which is this partnership between one of the giants, Google and Wendy's. And that actually makes a lot of sense. And Wendy's is using Google, it sounds like, for a variety of AI activities. But if you think about it, Amazon is a fast food competitor now, right? They bought Whole Foods, they're into, you know, Amazon is the king of speedy delivery. So if you think about it, they're almost competing directly. And I, I love the Jeff Bezos quote that your margin is my opportunity. You know, he, he warns people that he's gonna screw them when he partners with them. Um, Google doesn't do the same kind of thing, but um, you know everybody's got to watch out for these big companies because they want to grow and they need to choose their partnerships carefully. And I think Wendy's actually made a smart choice in choosing Google. Yeah, no, you covered a lot of ground there. And so, Carrie, I, I go to you. And uh, interesting story here. Your thoughts? Well, it's it is of interest. It's a space I'm working in currently, and both I agree with both of the speakers here because the challenges say for drive-through are real, but I think it's going to be totally automated eventually. And people are working on that now because and it has to do with labor and headcount because uh, KFC has roughly 40,000 people that do ordering. And if they can replace that, you think, wow, that's a massive, you know, savings and labor costs or re, you know, redistribution of the tasks. But that's not the biggest motivator in that from some of these viewpoints. Uh, it's really about, loss and humans steal from, you know, the, the teenage employees take food and money from the fast food employers. And so, you know, there's some dynamics here that, that are, aren't just technological, but, but I think drive-through is, uh, you know, I, I'm talking to people about that kind of stuff right now, in fact, and we are working on ordering. So ordering systems are being automated and, and that again, repurposes people or lessens the need for more headcount within a pizza chain, uh, say Yum Brands or 7-Eleven. And Todd, to your point, there's a lot of you know crossover now. You think of 7-Eleven as you know, a seedy little place on the corner. They have great real estate. But the reality is they're moving into fast food right now, too, with the later Laredo Taco 
chain. And I'm in discussions about a variety of things with them. And they are very, very interested in this and they're putting resources and effort into it. Right. So, so like as Amazon buys Whole Foods, others are moving in that direction. So the automation within a fast food or restaurant environment is happening across the entire workflow process. So it's not just the burger flipping, but it goes from ordering all the way to delivery. And we are working with one of the largest delivery companies in the nation. So I'm I'm seeing this in real time right now with some projects we're working on, and there's a lot of change. And and, and I agree with with the comment that partnering with Google by Wendy's is a good idea. Albertsons has done the same thing. There's a number of food-related, food service or food industry companies that are really moving quickly now. They've kind of been laggards, but now they're really moving in this direction. And we'll see a lot of automation across the entire workflows of food preparation, food delivery, all the above. So I think the automation is, it's inevitable. It will have impact on headcount and and uh, margins, so it's it's coming. Uh, there are some issues, you know, things like noise on drive through. I mean, there's some just you know uh, material issues, but that stuff's getting worked out. And once it happens, they'll all adopt it. There are very me too grocers and QSRs restaurants are all very me too, and I've actually been working in that space off and on for over a decade. So the things happening now are real. And they're, they're an opportunity for groups like ours to go leverage. You know, I'll, I'll mention one other thing. Kerry uh, had a lot of good metrics that the fast food industry looks at and wants to improve on. But one of the key things is that fast in the fast food. It's the speed of delivery. And AI can absolutely help in doing that, help in preparing things before people get there, preparing things faster is, is a real important thing that the fast food industry looks at. In fact, I'd really recommend anybody that hasn't seen the the McDonald's story, the Ray Kroc movie, awesome movie. And the the key thing that that you saw in that was that McDonald's made it big by reducing their menu down to the things that people wanted and preparing them in advance. It was all about sort of the speed of delivery for what people wanted. Isn't it interesting to to think... um how all of this is kind of playing out, you know, these fast food, as far as I can tell, restaurants up and down the the food chain, uh, pun intended, you know, from fast food all the way up to, you know, high end, high service, high touch, you know, steak restaurants or something, you know, they're all having trouble, you know, it's been very well documented, uh, the trouble they're having with staffing. And along comes, um, Along comes stories like this, and uh, you just wonder, um, you know, this, this, this could have been a disaster um, as uh, companies look to integrate technology like this that most certainly will displace human labor. But under this sort of narrative umbrella, I'm not, you know, it's going to dampen the blow. Um, interesting commentary all the way around. Well, uh, in the interest of time, we're going to go on to story number three so we can get to story number four. Um, story number three from Digital Trends, Bowers and Wilkins Zeppelin gets rebooted as a $799 high-res smart speaker. So um, this this is one of these stories I love to throw in the mix because it's kind of a Rorschach test on, you know, different things that folks who come on the show look at and and what's your, you know, different points of view. And uh, because there's a lot of different things that, you know, could be assessed with a story like this. 
Um, Todd, I'm going to start with you and then Carrie and then Alistair, and then we'll switch it back for the final story. Todd, um, interesting uh, concept here. Uh, Bowers and Wilkins, obviously very sophisticated company. What, if anything, stands out to you from this piece? Well, I love Bowers and Wilkins. I grew up with these giant Bowers and Wilkins speakers that they looked like little robots, actually. Actually, they looked like big robots. I think I had uh, 12 inch woofers in them, and they sounded awesome and they looked awesome. So, BMW is, is one of those iconic brands that not only makes really, really good quality, but also looks really, really cool. And their, their Zeppelin speakers are, are not an exception to that. They look awesome. Adding Alexa to it, you know, I, I love Alexa. I've got tons of Alexa speakers all over my house. I actually don't put it in this room because I don't want them going off every time I'm talking about them. But I think it makes sense to do it. I don't think it's a big deal. Um, companies that have tried to do their own um, speakers that, that compete in the speaker market by um, focusing on smart speakers are going to have a really, really tough time competing with Apple and Google and Amazon. The, the speakers that Amazon and Google and, and uh, Apple to, to a lesser degree sell are really good quality and really cheap. I mean, I, I bought an Echo, the latest Echo, um, when Amazon had one of their prime days, and I think it was like 40 bucks. And it when it works, it sounds good. The most recent one I found to be more defective than some of the older ones, but um, it's really hard to compete head to head with any of those companies because they're not trying to margin up the speakers and make a lot of money and they're doing really good volumes. But I think as, a, as an option to add on when it doesn't cost BMW a lot of money to add it on, Sure, and it's a cool feature, and some people will turn it on, and some people won't. Yeah, com complete agreement. Carrie, your thoughts? There's always going to be a need for luxury markets, and so this may be more of an ego play than a, a smart marketing play, I think, in my opinion. As Todd said, Alexa works great. Uh, Google, uh, Apple, they obviously have dominant positions, uh, a couple of years ago, a, a well-known venture capital group I was talking to, and I was talking about voice solutions and funding. And this particular guy flatly said he won't bet against Amazon that he's tried before in the past and I've never had success betting. Again. You know, even though he liked the idea and what was going on, you know, he just said flatly that you can't bet against Amazon. And um, so I think if you look at it as a, as a kind of an oddball luxury tool, you know, $800, as Todd said, $40 for an Echo. I mean, what's going to be the motivation except ego? You know, that, wow, I've got the coolest, newest, expensive thing. And I think there are people that buy on that model, but I certainly wouldn't. And, um, you know, I mean, you know, I, I don't know what else to say about that, right? I mean, how are they going to get market share? If, if put it in the cars, okay, that's, a you know, a niche. But, um but I really think, what's the purpose? I mean, a Me Too product in a, in a dominated market with three of the biggest companies on earth, you know, that dominate it, that's, you know, it, it, it better be appealing to where rich oil sheiks, you know, and, and, and new, you know, dot-com billionaires, but, but who else needs that, right? What, what's the need is my question. 
it's an interesting point of view and 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 uh yeah i think there's plenty of people who would probably share that alistair i want to go to you um interesting story here uh what you think yep i'm one of the people that that share that point of view <laughs> i'm i apologize i'm not an audio file audio file and, and i apologize to the people who are but this this story reminded me of um you know like blind wine tasting tests where you've got the cheap bottle of wine the medium price bottle of wine and the really expensive bottle of wine and when you blindfold people and ask them which is their preference you know they probably go for the cheap one um i <laughs> Maybe there are people out there who can say, yes, I can hear that speaker is much better quality, but um, uh, I, I think this is a showpiece uh, for people that want to spend a lot on something that looks nice. You know, it, on it. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think the conversation here kind of illustrates something interesting. You know, it, um, there's been talk for years now about what does the high end of the smart speaker market look like you know because there's ubiquity with echo devices and google devices you know apple took their shot with homepod but their utter ineptitude slash no you know third-party developers present in the ecosystem uh created something that was dead on arrival you know but does that mean that there's not room at the at the higher end for something meaningful i i i think there probably is what my my struggle with this is uh, and i don't know if it's a struggle it's just sort of an open question you know uh you see what does it mean now for alexa and google to be part of a product like is that is that a ticket to play is that you know is that like i expect to see it and won't buy something without it is it, I view that as value added and would pay more. Um, I think it means different things in different verticals. I think it means something different in the car, for example, than it might in the smart speaker analogy. But um, I, think it, I think the answer to that's constantly in flux. And it's interesting to observe here that you've got this premium brand in Bowers and Wilkins who makes outstanding products view it as additive to them to integrate Alexa into their product, um, a longstanding product, I might add, um, as a as a sales device. I don't I don't really know what it means to be honest. I just think it's interesting. Any closing thoughts on this? I, I think it is a value added feature to add Alexa. You know, I, I love being able to ask questions um, just off the top of my head when I'm in conversations with my family and Probably a quarter of the time, Alexa can help out and answer those questions. I think there's a there's a scarier or sinister aspect to having Alexas and Googles and these things on and listening too, and that's that they suddenly control a big part of the experience. You know, I've noticed that on my Echo based products now, I start seeing the ring light up that I have a message, and now whenever I listen to the message, I've stopped listening to the message because they're all ads for me to buy something. And on Google, Google was horrible for a while because every time I turn on my Google speaker, it wanted to try and upgrade me to YouTube pay per month. And I, I, I basically stopped using my Google speakers because I got tired of those ads. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, if that's the case, then it just means, you know, it, it means what I think we all sort of implicitly know is true, that Alexa 
And, and I kind of mentioned specifically Alexa, though it's probably true for Google Assistant too. Like it just defies brand, it just defies socioeconomic classification. You know, it's like, is, is Alexa something like, I think when Alexa came out, there were stories that we would cover where, you know, um, and some of them were education oriented, Alistair, where, um, you know, children who had access, families who had access to Alexa were um, ahead of the ball game. Um, and it was questionable, is it because they had the smart smart speakers or is it, was it just inherent because they're, they're wealthier because Amazon customers skew wealthier to begin with. Um, and now that's sort of evolved as we've gone along, but uh, you know, it's, it's just interesting to think about what this story means, like in terms of Alexa's own like brand affinity, like that, that the same AI you could put in a $40 that's often marked down to 20 or often free echo dot um, is the same AI that you can put in a Bowers and Wilkins $799, you know, pretty luxurious and premium high-end audio product. That's kind of different. That's kind of different. So I don't know what it, like I said, I don't know what it means, but um, you know, uh, I guess we'll all find out together. I want to get to this last story and we'll cover it uh, briefly. Let me um, pull it up here. Where have all the Alexas gone? So um, the order for this will be the original order, uh, Carrie, Alistair, and Todd. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, we invited someone at the head of uh, this, the uh, Alexa is a human movement. I'll call it the movement. It it's, appears to be that. It's gathered steam. And these are people who were mad, at, at, you know, to use a general term, some are more aggressive than mad. Um, about the fact that Amazon had the audacity to name their voice assistant Alexa. They claim all kinds of things. Uh, the person we had at uh, the Alexa conference last year, we called it that, um, talked about abuse of her daughter and people would make fun of her. And that was her point of view. Other people have talked about it from the standpoint that just as a matter of practical course, no AI ought to have a human name because you're going to run into this sort of thing over and over again. Uh, this is an interesting sort of retrospective article on it. Um, and uh, just want to hear your thoughts and, um, and we'll wrap up with this. Carrie, what you think? Well, you and I have had this discussion uh, at least a couple of times, and I've been focused on natural language conversational AI, not command-based solutions, right? So I honestly don't have anybody talking about Alexa at all. Um, those that are seeking true conversational problem-solving solutions, right? So it's really about, are you replacing tasks? Are you replacing or answering questions that you need information on? Um, things that take questions and answers and conversation. So I, I, I don't even talk to people about Alexa. I think it's utility. I mean, just my opinion. It's now just a ubiqui ubiquitous uh, utility, like a lamp or a TV or something that you use, and there's functions it serves. Um, and they, they, you know, they can move it into other places, cars and other, you know, applications, uh, you know, or, or channels you might look at it as. But it's still not conversational. It, it's not to me a problem solver, Todd. You know, you said you get about 
quarter of your answers solved on Alexa. Um, I just don't have people talking about Alexa, even people that probably own them and people I, you know, that I talk to weekly or daily or once, right? It, it just it just doesn't really come up in the conversations. But also I I start those conversations about natural language and ordering systems and you know and other kinds of problem solving solutions. So, you know, my view of that, you know, I don't really have a huge opinion, frankly, but uh, I just don't have people asking about it because of the nature of the work I'm trying to do. I think it's a combination of the fact that, um, you know, that, that this massive, massive juggernaut has called this, this product, I guess what we'll call Alexa for the moment, you know, a human name. And then they combined with the unbelievably, um, wide-ranging marketing they've put behind it so it's like i try to think about if there was like a lamp to, to use your your example a lamp called bradley like would i care like if everyone like if everyone anytime my name ever came up like it was in reference to this product over here it's hard it's hard to put yourself in those shoes um alistair i want to go to you and and get your thoughts you know does this does this uh strike a chord with you one way or the other yeah you know our um our, our company's main brand is Lexile. And whenever we say Alexile, uh, there's, there's a chance it's going to trigger trigger Alexa, um, who'll join our meetings. So um, my, I, 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 after reading this, I feel sympathy for those people called Alexa. Uh, I would say you're not the only ones. My, uh, my brother used to work in an education company in England. Um, named after the Egyptian goddess Isis. Um, <laughs> they had to do a rebranding and change their name very expensively. And my kid is at school with a friend uh, whose name is or was COVID. And uh, he, uh, he uh, decided to change his name because of the, the connotations there. So um, you're not the only ones, uh, Alexa's out there. Uh, other people uh, suffer the misfortunes of, of whatever new culture throws at us um, and associates with their names. Wow, uh, that's, that's interesting. Um, Todd, I'm gonna leave the last word to you. Um, your thoughts on this story? Well, I, I sympathize with all the people that are bothered by the name Alexa. And I think there's a whole lot of reasons to be mad at Amazon, but I don't think naming their product Alexa is a, a fair reason to blame Amazon. First of all, they rolled it out, not just with Alexa, but you could switch it to Amazon. And I think computer was even a choice. So there are different options of, of how it can be used. And if you start blaming people for commonly used names, you know, like, are you going to sue the people that came out with COVID because there was a person named COVID that had to change their name? I don't know. I, I feel like it's kind of a silly issue. It reminds me of, um, you know, there's stories that people will write about, you know, since this has come up, there's stories about, you know, people being named all kinds of things. You know, I remember reading a story about a decade ago um, about somebody who named their child ESPN. And it actually summoned social workers <laughs> in the precise way you think that it might. And um, there was a big conversation around that. I think it was 10 years ago, maybe 15. So it's interesting to note here that um, some people take the opposite approach. Some people name their children what they view to be commercially opportunistic things. So um, uh, I don't know, you know, I, I think it's all moot probably anyway, because is Amazon going to change it? Absolutely not. 
So um, anyway, it's a good one to end on. And gentlemen, uh, great getting some of your time. Uh, great uh, having all three of you on the show to share, your, you know, not just your time, your, your wealth of experience and expertise as well. Great to be here. Thanks so much, Bradley. Thanks, Bradley. Cheers, guys. For season six, episode three of This Week in Voice, thank you for watching. If you're watching on YouTube or listening, if you're on your podcast provider of choice, until next time. <laughs>